of God's Word today. So please stand and let us read Psalms 58. This is the Word of the Lord. To the chief musician set to Do Not Destroy, a miktam of David. Do you indeed speak righteousness, you silent ones? Do you judge uprightly, you sons of men? No, in heart you work wickedness. You weigh out the violence of your hands in the earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. Their poison is like the poison of a serpent. They are like the deaf cobra that stops its ear, which will not heed the voice of charmers, charming ever so skillfully. Break their teeth in their mouth, O God. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them flow away as waters which run continually. When he bends his bow, let his arrows be as if cut in pieces. Let them be like a snail which melts away as it goes, like a stillborn child of a woman, that they may not see the sun. Before your pots can fill the burning thorns, he shall take them away as with a whirlwind, as in his living and burning wrath. The righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked, so that men will say, Surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely he is God who judges in the earth. May God bless his word as we look at it this morning. You may be seated. <clears throat> okay, so we are continuing on in what's called book two of um, the Psalms. And we are at Psalm 58. If you recall from the message of Psalm 57, which was, I suppose, three weeks ago now with the intervention of things... Um, we uh, return now to our series in Psalms, Book 2. And at that time, when we looked at Psalm 57, I mentioned how Book 2 is more of an experiential type of uh, grouping of the Psalms. Um, book 2 includes the Psalms 42 through 72. And many, many, many moons ago, we covered the first half of this book. And now we're into the second half. And they are Psalms that's are more identifiable, you might say, to the personal life of uh, believers and their walk in this world. Uh, and we certainly did see that when we looked at Psalm 57, as it talked about the various dangers and trials based in David's life that he was facing as he fled from Saul and was hiding in caves um, and challenged in that, that way. And in that psalm, then, we were challenged by how David handled his situation as to how we ought to handle our situations that we face in this world. You know, we acknowledge, as David did, we are to acknowledge the reality of the situation. We don't handle uh, life's circumstances by saying it doesn't really exist. No, he acknowledged what he was facing, but he acknowledged that this reality is not outside of God. God 
is still God over these situations, and God still has his purpose. It doesn't get lost because we face a hardship. It doesn't get lost. He has his purposes for David, he acknowledged in the psalm, and for us. And we should praise God for that, and we should expect God to bring forth what he has purposed. And we can acknowledge how God um, can actually come forth if it is beyond circumstances that, well, what I want to say is if it's people who are actually acting in such a way to do us harm and do us challenges, he can actually trip them up, and he can confuse them, and he can actually conquer them in their own deceptions and in other ways. And so we can rest in that when you have challenges in, in this world. That's what Psalm 57 was bringing forth. And um, we're going to see and see, hear some similar aspects in this psalm. But there's at least two um, distinctives uh, that can be emphasized from Psalm 57 to Psalm 58. Psalm 58 here is specifically directed towards rulers of the earth. It's more precise in its direction and not just toward trials and circumstances we may face, though these rulers can certainly, uh, behaving tyrannically, can be the source of trials in our life. You might recall from the uh, July 2nd Sunday message uh, that we had in the park that I told you I was almost persuaded by um, listening to a message by Joe Moorcraft. It was, uh, I listened to it again just to, to hear it. It was 2009, and he said the July 4th weeks. So I don't know if July 4th was a Sunday that year, but he said this Psalm 58 was quite appropriate for that time period because it deals with responding to tyrants in many ways. And um, so, yeah, I was almost chosen, I mean, I was almost persuaded to uh, go with it, but I decided to choose the more historical message of what occurred, using what occurred on that day, July 2nd in 1776, as the basis for the message and to illustrate how the pastors were so involved in the action and the thinking, and maybe I should put it the other way around, the thinking and the actions of Americans during the colonial period as they uh, saw what was going on and they reasoned concerning what was going on and responded to the tyrannical acts. And so we're going to have two messages now on responding to tyranny. (laughs) One was more historical, but rooted in the biblical reasoning of the pastors, and another now, what does God's word say right here? So this psalm is distinct then from 57, though dealing with troubles with a more narrowed uh, focus about reaction to tyranny of rulers. A second aspect in which Psalm 58 is distinctive from 57 is uh, the category that it falls into among the types of psalms. In other words, how this one is often classified. Again, when we got back into doing the Psalms, and I usually do this as a beginning, as each time we return to the Psalms, I mentioned that Psalms can be classed, these Psalms, the various ones, can be classified according to uh, a major emphasis of the Psalm, 
categories like praise psalms and wisdom, laments, uh, the messianic psalms, penitence, uh, imprecatory, and thanksgiving. Those are the typical uh, categories that are utilized among commentators and others to speak about the kind of psalms that there are. And this psalm, you may have gathered, particularly by its middle portion, falls among those called the imprecatory psalms. And depending on how you count, I'm not sure, but they come up with a various number of imprecatory psalms. I guess it's if you're deciding if that's its major emphasis or not. But there are between 15 and 20 um, psalms that will typically fall among the group categorized as imprecatory psalms, and Psalm 58 seems to be consistently among the list. So what does it mean that a psalm is an imprecatory psalm? We ought to make sure we on the same basis of understanding here. The word imprecatory, according to Webster's 1828 Dictionary, is um, something is imprecatory if it's containing a prayer of evil to befall a person. Containing a prayer of evil to befall a person. So an imprecation, turning it into its noun here, as opposed to the adjective, turning it into its noun, Webster says that it is the act of imprecating or invoking evil on anyone. A prayer that a curse or calamity may fall on anyone. Well, that's not something usually we're comfortable in hearing about or thinking that we should do. (laughs) It doesn't, you know, how do you respond to that kind of definition and that kind of action, you know, uh, praying that a curse or a calamity or evil would come on a person. Um, It's usually not the kind of prayer or thoughts that the American Christian is really comfortable with thinking and praying. I think with our modernized and too often thought of as better than the Bible Christianity (laughs) that we practice often here in America— a type of Christianity that only knows you're supposed to always have happy thoughts, okay? You must always have happy thoughts and, and pray happy things um, because you want to feel good and you want everybody to feel good. And as Bodhi Bauckham says, you always want to obey the 11th commandment, right? Thou shalt be nice. That, that's our Christianity, right? <laughs> that's what we're asked to do and to be. And, of course, what we pray for is, you know, to be blessed with money, possessions, good times. That's, that's what we're, prayers are for. And so it's hard to reconcile in our minds uh, praying a prayer that evil would happen or a calamity would come upon another person. But guess what? David, the author of the psalm here, He did not only think imprecatory thoughts like at these times here. He did not only write imprecatory words. He didn't even just pray imprecatory words. He sang them as a song. (laughs) 
He's saying these as a song. Can you believe that? And in fact, this psalm, along with about a dozen others, uh, imprecatory songs or psalms, which were songs, they were sung by the congregation of Israel at times. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't their only diet of songs, (laughs) but they were sung by the congregation of Israel at times. I mean, we have right here in the title, To the Chief Musician, Um, Not all psalms start with that, but many do, and they're saying, hey, you know, you're leading the choir, put this in the hymnal. (laughs) Keep it there and use it in the hymnal. And so we have the chief musician, or as the ESV puts it, the choir master being addressed here in the very beginning and saying that this is a song that should be a part of the repertoire of music that is sung in corporate worship. Now, there is a legitimate basis on which you could have some conflict of mind in addressing and speaking positively about an imprecatory psalm, and that being something that should be part of your life if the conditions are such that it ought to be asserted. Um, I mean, we do have Jesus in the New Testament, right? Go to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 and look at verses 43 and 44. Okay. We do have an issue here. There are not 43 or 44 verses in Matthew 6, right? What? <laughs> There's not. Well, we're not going to bring in words that aren't here. It's either I've got uh, the wrong chapter. Yes, it's chapter 5. There we go. Chapter 5, verses 43 and 44. It says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. So we have that command from Jesus Christ to his followers. So somehow there needs to be a reconciliation here because we know that God's word is not contradictory. It doesn't contradict itself. How can we uh, act or take an action of praying, calling down evil on a person in the form of an imprecatory prayer, and how can that be reconciled with the words of our Lord, which tells us that we are not to hate our enemies, but to love them, bless them, be good to them, and pray for them. So we have these two things. Well, I think some guiding principles can help us in keeping the understanding correct and reconciling these concepts. First of all, the instructions that Jesus is giving here on the Sermon on the Mount is dealing with our interpersonal relationships with others, an individual relationship one to another. He's not necessarily addressing our relationship to those exercising rulership authority over us, though we are to pray for our rulers, 
Paul tells that in his letter to Timothy. We're to pray for our rulers that we can live a peaceable life and that the gospel could flourish. And we do want to pray for our rulers that they act in such a way that they are in accordance with the Word of God and they provide security in the land and they promote security in the conditions under which the gospel can um, progress. But the focus of our Lord's teaching here is horizontal, one with another individual. Secondly, where they're dealing with a troubling neighbor an overbearing boss, or even an oppressive government, we are never called upon personally to take vengeance ourselves. Okay? And that's something we need to keep in mind. We are not called upon to be the vigilante. In Romans twelve nineteen, Paul writes, Of the Lord speaking, vengeance is mine, says the Lord I will repay. In fact, within that context, our actions are to heap coals of fire upon their head by doing good, just as Jesus instructed to those. So when a personal act can be done, even to one who is doing evil toward us, it should be one of good. That they hopefully would like get a little hot-headed about their own actions. <laughs> Coals of fire on there going, why am I doing this to this person? Thirdly, don't get too excited about imprecatory prayers. They aren't to be flippantly done, okay? It's not like, hey, I didn't like that. Curse you. No, that is not the attitude out of which these things are done. They're not to be flippantly implemented Obviously, they're in the Scripture, but even among the Psalms, if we take 150 Psalms, they're only about 10% imprecatory. And Psalm 119 that Steve's been taking us through, where actually each stanza of about eight, psalm, eight verses is pretty much a psalm in and of itself. And you add those 22 in, you're well under 10% of the Psalms are imprecatory. So using that as a guide well under 10% of your prayers had ought not, you know, or should only be part of that, if at all, because on what basis would we do them? Well, getting a little bit of perspective in, having a few guidelines on understanding our role, being able to reconcile what Christ has said interpersonally one with another, our actions, our hopes, so that individual would be changed, that we could be a blessing to them, that they would change, and when to use these in terms of they are directed towards those in authority, but when to do it. Um, hopefully things are starting to settle down in that area. We'll get a little more clarity as we go along. But we do need to realize they're here. They're in the Psalms. Though not many, they are there. And there apparently does come a time when the oppression reaches a point where it's time that these prayers be uttered. And what you are uttering is that God would act as the judge that he is. That he would judge in the earth at this time. And he would judge these oppressive rulers, and they're cursed, and he would curse their practices. Um, I think as far as 
attitude in which we go at this, we can actually draw historically from our founding fathers and how they expressed their own actions um, in resisting uh, the tyranny of the time. Now, remember, they resisted it. That's another thing I will bring out in terms of aggressively attacking and ultimately resisting. They were resisting the tyranny of the time and under the trials and oppression of the rulers that they were facing and in asserting that they will now resist to the point of independence, they used these words that you're so very familiar with. First of all, they recognize that over time, it has been now proven that this government is on a course that they will not change. For we've given every opportunity. They said this, prudence. Now, you know what prudence is? Prudence is the use of wisdom in order to avoid evil. Okay? And so they are now acting in prudence that they would avoid acting in a manner that is too rash and evil. Or to not act as they ought. So prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. That would be evil on their part. So, for light, I mean, how many times have you as a parent behaved more oppressively than you should with your child? Okay, or transient, it's come and gone. That doesn't make you a tyrant over your child. It makes you a human being that makes mistakes, right? Or in a, in a boss over workers, uh, you know, getting uh, too impatient with somebody or acting in such a way that really didn't, the situation didn't deserve such aggressive act. Those things can happen. So light and transient causes, but, they said, when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them to absolute despotism. So history has testified over time that this is the case. It's again and it's again, though appeals have been made. That's the basis on which they rose up in terms of resistance, and I am sure (laughs) that there were imprecatory prayers that then ensued. So the right of resistance, including praying imprecatory prayers, does come into play in time. We'll have a little more to say about that as we enter that portion of this psalm. But, again, thinking about the contrast of what Jesus said and what's said here, think think this thought as well, or, or ponder this question as well. Can you pray imprecatory prayers and pray for the salvation and reconciliation of yourself with an oppressor? Can both those prayers come out of your mouth at the same time? And it can. It should. It ought to be able to. That's what David himself did and does. We can witness this in his life, uh, in his struggle with Paul and flee, or Saul and fleeing from Saul. Um, This psalm, like the one that precedes it, has that expression at the front which says, do not destroy. 
Now, your ESV says according to, and your New King James, which is what I'm using today, says set to, do not destroy. They're both operating on the basis that there was some known song called do not destroy that they're following. I haven't found that there's a basis for it to say according to and set to, not that I'm a big expert here. And so I have taken the position that this is, as we studied the life of David around Psalm 57 and how he asserted when he had the time to take Saul's life, do not destroy. That's what he said to the helper as they went into the camp. Do not destroy uh, the Lord's anointed. And so that's a contextual expression there. And we have here another psalm that's right in this same situation as we saw in Psalm 57 of the particular trial that David had as he was facing the onslaught attack and chasing and persecuting and threatening to kill him from Saul. And David wrote this psalm of judgment to fall upon wicked rulers. Apparently at this time, and that wicked individual would have been Saul and those that were operating with him, Yet, in that same context, we have the encounters of David with Saul in which he did good in not taking Saul's life when it was there in his hands and also appealing openly to Saul in the hopes of which I'm sure was his prayer that he and Saul could be reconciled, that the things could be made right, and that Saul would not continue to pursue and he would be accepted within the realm of Saul's circle. So yes, in harmony, you can pray both for the changed heart, the restoration, and the salvation of those that are oppressing you, and also pray that God, if it be his will at this time, judge the situation even to their destruction. It can be done and was in the life of David, imprecatory prayers and acts of kindness and pleas of reconciliation can both honestly be exercised by the individual. David's life demonstrates that. Well, our last little introductory remark here, we're going to have a little hard time getting going in the psalm. It'll happen here soon. Um, just referencing the mictum expression here again, we've talked about how it's a difficult word to understand. This is the third psalm in a row that has that. It's the third of five in a row that are going to have it being referenced as a mictum. And as I mentioned before, it's a little understood word, and there's meanings that have ranged. Uh, most of the Study Bibles I've looked at have said, well, it's a liturgical term or some type of term concerning the type of worship or use of the psalm. Um, others who have talked about it have drawn upon the actual literal meaning of miktam, which apparently is engraving. And so there's some speculation that these are psalms that were actually written on cave walls engraved by David. That's what calls, calls them a miktam. I don't know. I still don't know. But we'll leave it at that. And we will move on 
56 through 60, or the Mictums, and we'll quit talking about Mictums in such extent probably from now on, because I've covered about everything I can think about that I've read on it. So let's look at this Mictum of David, whatever that actually means. The psalm begins with these words, as they are written in the New King James. Do you indeed speak righteousness, you silent ones? Do you judge uprightly, you sons of men? Now, I emphasize the translation I'm using because if you have a different translation, there are, there are, there's a word that's oddly different from what you have. The very first line of verse 1 in the ESV reads, do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Or in the King James, it says, do you indeed speak righteousness, O congregation? Well, that's kind of an array of words to be used there in that first verse. We've got New King James, you silent ones. We've got the ESV, you gods. And then we got the King James, O congregation. So I thought we ought to at least address that a little bit here, since we run up against this potential difficulty right away. In my mind, from looking at the Hebrew word and reading commentators, even those that are on the King James basis, uh, I can't quite get my mind around how O Congregation is a good translation. Maybe in time it will come. But um, I find it the least supportive uh, type of translation, the more difficult to really grab. Um, somehow they see a contrasting parallel between O Congregation and Son of Men. Okay? And it could be that they're saying, you know, why... No, are you speaking righteousness, O congregation, meaning those who are the people of God, and then saying, do you judge uprightly, you sons of men, giving more of the contrasting derogatory term, you're just sons of Adam, really. But we'll get to that in a moment. I kind of dismiss that one as the one that would be most helpful what I see is that you gods or you silent ones are better choices, yet uh, they actually seem to sound very different. And I think the uh, translation choice here has to do uh, either with translating in terms of parallelism and context as opposed to translating and just letting literal sense be used. I mean, both those things are part of what needs to be a part of what you do when you translate. And um, by this, what I'm saying is the Hebrew word literally means silence. Silent. Okay? And that's what the New King James has done here. But when you look at the context of the psalm, it is addressed to rulers. And one of the ways in which rulers are addressed, even in the Psalms, is to call them gods, okay? And um, the, well, just to show you in case you're not familiar, in Psalm 82, which is the particular Psalm that this occurs, 
In Psalm 82, um, verse 1, God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. And in verse 6, I said, you are gods and all of you are children of the Most High. And um, the context there, and as Jesus even used it, for he'll reference this verse, He's talking about those that are exercising authority in Israel or referenced gods. You can go to John chapter 10. John chapter 10 and verse 34. This is Jesus speaking to the Jews. And they're all upset because um, in verse thirty. Three, the Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you. This is one of the times they were wanting to stone him. But for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself God. And Jesus, in response, said, Now wait a minute. Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? Okay. So he's saying there's an appropriate way for which this term can be used for those who are in authority in uh, exercising authority in the name of God in uh, the land. And so um, the ESV has taken that knowing that rulers are, as Paul says in Romans 13, ministers of God a revenger to exercise, to execute wrath upon those that do evil, that uh, they would choose the word gods here and also have it in contrast to son of men. Because what the psalmist is going to be doing here is uh, bringing them down to earth as to what and who they really are and their nature. So it's probably a good choice if it's kind of the overall context and even some of the immediate contrast. But I think that um, the psalmist could very well be saying, you don't speak righteousness. You are silent. You are son of men. He is more emphasizing the parallelism is more of a synonymous parallelism, parallelism than an antithesis, okay? Instead of going from gods to man, he's going from your silent men because you are of the fallen nature of Adam and you're living that out. That's exactly where he goes with the rest of the psalm. And so that's the position I've taken here and that's why I chose the New King James for the translation. So the position being addressed is um, exposing their silence to evil in the land. And the second half of verse 1, as I mentioned, by Hebrew parallelism, is uh, asserting it in a greater emphasis. So do you indeed speak righteousness, you silent ones? Do you judge uprightly, you sons of men? Their silence concerning righteousness is their lack of judgment uprightly about evil in the land. Uh, They don't render rulings in cases in a right fashion, in a way that is uh, befitting one who would be 
standing up for righteousness. They're not passing judgment on evil of their day because they are entrapped in the nature of the sons of men. Again, the sons of men is used to bring forth, really, I think, two related truths um, that is denied or not being acknowledged by those who are in power. One, people who are in ruling power often let that go to their heads, and they seem to think that they are above all others, that they can rule as they will, and it should be obeyed. Because, by the way, they're the ones in power. That's what a tyrant and a despot does, is they behave as a god. So yes, you gods may be a good translation here. But they, they are acting as if their rule is right because they're the ones that ruled it. And that's never the basis of rightness in the earth. It is on the basis of being in accordance with the law of God. Uh, as Blackstone would have said in the commentaries and did in the commentaries, that any law that is in contrary to the law of nature, which is the will of God, it is null and void. And so these rulers are behaving as gods. They're doing it in accordance here with actually just not speaking any righteousness. And this psalmist wants to bring them off their pedestal. He says, you are mere men. When he says you are sons of men, you are nothing more than mere men like everybody else who has to put up with your not only foolish, but very wicked and unrighteous actions. But there's a second meaning that I've been alluding to and even expressing quite clearly, and that is he is going to describe these men as still entrapped in their Adamic nature. For the very word there for man is Adam. You sons of Adam is the word being stated here. And he will immediately progress in the next verse to describing the fallen nature of mankind. And he is saying, you rulers are living and acting out of the very fallen nature of Adam. You are mere men, bringing them down to the level of all, and you are still entrapped in a wicked nature. So answering his own question of verse 1, do you indeed speak righteousness? Do you judge uprightly? Verse 2 begins with no. The answer is no. And why not? He tells us, in heart you work wickedness. In heart you work wickedness. The scripture is clear that the source of man's wickedness is his heart. And the psalmist acknowledges, recognizes, and asserts that concerning these rulers. The very core of their being, for the heart refers to that, is wicked. Just as Jeremiah stated in Jeremiah 17:9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Yeah, these rulers need to first understand, as do we all, that we are entrapped with a wicked and sinful nature that must be dealt with and addressed. 
Jesus even brought this out very clearly about how desperately wicked the heart is when he said that out of it all manners of evil flow. You might remember this from Matthew 15. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and blasphemies. Quite an array of evil, and in fact, all manner of evil. It does. It emits through our lives, out of our very core, our being. And so Solomon in Proverbs 4 um, warned against leaving your heart unbridled, warned against leaving your heart to just act as it is naturally uh, inclined to do. And he told, uh, he asserted, keep your heart with all diligence. That means guard your heart. That word means to guard. Guard your heart diligently, for out of it spring the issues of life. But ultimately, even as we prayed for the individual that David was able to bear witness to, he needs a, we all need a change of heart, don't we? For our heart is wicked. We need to guard our heart since it tends that way as well. But we need a change of heart. We need heart surgery. A stony heart needs to be removed. And a heart of flesh, one that's able to be molded and shaped by the Holy Spirit into the uh, image of Christ and of his nature and one that desires the things of God is what needs to occur in our life. And as Paul instructed Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.22, he said, Flee also youthful lusts. You know, he's talking to a believer. Well, we got to guard our heart, right? Flee youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. We have the responsibility to keep our heart pure and to pursue those things that are of a pure heart. Yeah, we all need a heart change, and in that we need to continue to operate according to the wisdom of Solomon, monitoring our heart, guarding our heart diligently, and filling our heart with the seeds of righteousness. For Jesus also explained that a good man out of the good treasure of his heart those good seeds of righteousness that they have stored within them brings forth good things. This is why it's so important that those in position of authority actually be men of character. Men of character and um, of a nature after God. That's, That's how Israel itself was instructed when they were spoken to about choosing those that would rule over them. In Exodus 18.21, Moses said, Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, so they've got to be capable, such as fear God. They need to be in the first position of how or from where wisdom comes. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Able men who fear God... Men of truth, they're desiring the true, hating covetousness. They hate to fall within the realm of desiring others' things. 
unjust taxation and that kind of covetousness on the part of the government and place such over them, or I guess God is instructing Moses of this, place such over them to be rulers, able men, fearing God, men of truth, hating covetousness. Those weren't the kind of rulers David was dealing with here. We need to realize that the choice of rulers is so vital for us today. For again, as Solomon said in the proverb, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. So here David is exposing the wickedness of the ruling. They are wicked at heart. Their wickedness is from the heart. And it's out of the heart their wicked actions proceed. As he says in the second part of verse 2, you weigh out the violence of your hands in the earth. He is accusing them of taking violent actions in the earth, in the land. He's accusing them of wrecking havoc in the land. It's not just that they're silent about righteousness and and, and not judging uprightly, and so wickedness is uh, not being judged by them, is that they themselves are the act, active agents of wickedness, wrecking havoc, producing havoc in the earth. They are workers of iniquity that come right out of their wicked heart. And we definitely see such things happening even in our lands at different levels as well. You know, one of the most horrendous evils of our day that is now being exposed on such a higher level, even though there are so many trying to oppress and keep it out, is the child sex trafficking that has been exposed by the film Sound of Freedom. And there, um, this evil is known by those who are in power in the land and could act upon it. But even they have tried to keep it silent. They, are, they have been silent when they should be speaking righteousness and judging uprightly. And it may very well be that some even have their very hands in that violence working the wickedness in the land. And these are the things that we, get, we are facing even here today. And so... David, having addressed the wicked judges in the first two verses here, he goes into a second section, which includes verses 3, 4, and 5. Verse 3 says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. The psalmist here is affirming that One's wicked nature is innate. It is from the beginning. Um, It is part of their nature from the beginning. They are estranged from the moment they are separated from the womb. They are estranged from God. From birth on, they are in a path of wickedness and destruction, for they go astray, he says, speaking lies. And not being a child that would be raised in a godly home, most likely, and one who's under the instruction of righteousness from the Word of God, and having never responded to the message of the gospel of salvation and submitted to the Lordship of Christ, they are left in their wickedness, and they are wicked individuals that 
in time will sink deeper and deeper and do sink in the great depths of their own depravity and work evil. And it's an evil that they now believe is a good. An evil they call good and desire it more and more. The psalmist then moves into drawing upon an analogy of a poisonous serpent or snake and and a charmer who uh, would bring that snake under control um, through various sounds that uh, they would be emitting through an instrument or through their own voice that the snake would respond to. Now, a snake naturally has poor hearing, but has a range they can hear, and that's what the charmer captures when he's able to control uh, some of the movements of a snake. And so, you know, to do that with a very poisonous snake like a cobra is a fascinating thing for individuals. Well, the psalmist draws upon that and draws upon the analogy of the poisonous serpent or snake and the charmer who brings it under his control. Um, The psalmist makes a a transition, you might say, to discuss this by speaking of the power of the rulers as a poison. In verse 4, he says, they're poison. But he says it's like the poison of a serpent. Because he wants to move into speaking about particularly the controlling of the cobra. A cobra that refuses to hear the sounds of the charmer. This is verses 4 and 5. Their poison is like the poison of a serpent. They are like the deaf cobra that stops its ear, which will not heed the voice of charmers, charming ever so skillfully. Those who work with, work with these snakes in this fashion find that there are some snakes that just refuse to respond, just refuse to respond. They are called deaf cobras, but it's not that they can't hear. It's that they are of a nature that they will stop their ears. The psalmist makes it very clear that this is the act of the snake. This is the act chosen to be taken by the wicked ruler. They will stop their ears. They will not listen. You know, in some ways they're like the child who um, you know has heard what you have said. (laughs) You know they have heard your words or the words of their mother and, and just is not responding. And this is a really a very significant thing that needs to be addressed immediately because in the practice of not responding, they learn to not respond and eventually to not hear what is actually heard. And this is how the wicked rulers are. And it's important that dads, though they may be in another room and they hear mom giving the instruction, calling the child's name, and it having to be repeated again and give the new instruction, they need to realize the child is practicing stopping their ears. Because if you're in the other room and you can hear it, and you can clearly understand it, they have as well. 
And it's important that we intervene immediately and begin making the child practice hearing (laughs) and making them admit they have heard and have chosen not to respond and to learn to listen to the instruction of their mother. In fact, Proverbs is so clear as to say, instruction of your father and the law of your mother. (laughs) It gives a real strong word there. (laughs) So, yeah, they need to learn to listen to that. And we as fathers and parents can aid them in that, that they not be like the cobra who learns to stop his ears. For that is what wicked rulers have done. They have learned not to listen. They are trained, not trained to listen, and they learn to not listen to the voice of God or conscience that is in them, directing them. They have been become ones who would stop their ears and, like the snake, not respond to the charmer. They become the individual not responding to the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And they become wicked rulers and wicked individuals, stopping their ears and have totally uh, shut off their conscience, the prick of conscience and the voice of God. They are wicked rulers that have reached the level that Paul would say, having a seared conscience. And those wicked rulers who demonstrate over a long train of abuses that they are not going to change need to be removed. And that's what the psalmist comes to at this point. Having described them as they are, he comes to the imprecatory portion of his song and prayer. The psalmist then uh, enters into that in verses 6 through 9, a section of the prayer for divine vengeance against the wicked. In verse 6, He sings robustly. (laughs) Break their teeth in their mouth. O God, break out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Yeah, remember this is a song, but it's a prayer. And he's saying, smash them. Smash them right in the source from which they afflict the greatest damage and hurt upon us. Smash their teeth. Rip out their fangs. Think you could sing such songs? <laughs> Do you think you could pray such prayers? It's quite challenging for us. But they did. The Israelites did sing these songs, and I'm sure with great gusto as I was trying to emphasize here, as one commentator says of this verse, here David asked God to shatter their teeth, symbolizing the destruction of the power of the wicked. Okay, so that is to come down upon their position and their uh, actions of power. Having smashed the source of power, the psalmist then prays that they would simply fade away, that they would just disappear, and uh, that any attempts to do harm would be completely without effect. And that's what we see like for in verse 7, let them flow away as waters which run continually. Water that runs continually, what is right before you is soon gone. And that's what he's saying. Let them go, gone, out of this world, out of the influence. And then he says, 
when he bends his bow, if he's in a position still to exercise any authority, let his arrows be cut in pieces. So anything that he would attempt to inflict be completely broken and useless. And any uh, motions and actions he take would be like an arrow that is so broken that when let loose, it flutters harmlessly to the ground. Similar sentiments are expressed in verse 8, but they go beyond the smashing of his power and the disappearing of his authority and the ineffectualness of his actions to the actual death of the individual. Where he says, let them be like the snail which melts away as it goes. Basically referring to the idea that, you know, a snail as it moves along, it leaves a slimy path and it was... um, toyed with the idea that that snail, if it went far enough, it'd just melt away, leaving so much of itself behind. So it's just kind of picturing that idea. Or uh, let them be, let them be, is the concept here, like a stillborn child of a woman, that they may not see the sun. Yeah. Let them be as one completely powerless and lifeless, just as a woman so sadly may give birth to a stillborn child, one that has no life within him. The prayer is that the wicked would become lifeless like that. Those are very harsh words, strong, pointed words, calling upon calamities to come upon these individuals, not just to the extent of stopping their power, but if necessary, stopping their life. But realize here, nowhere is David praying, God, give me the opportunity to be the one to bring this to pass upon these individuals. He's not prayed that at all. He said, oh God, do this, do this, do this. Exercise your judgment in the earth. And as I referenced Romans twelve nineteen. Let us read it in its greater, you know, the, the, the totality of that verse. He says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. That's a clear command. Do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, some have mistakenly considered the American War for Independence as then an unjust war, as they apparently, in their understanding, are trying to act in vengeance upon uh, Britain at that time. And out of accordance with Romans 13, and we addressed uh, the concept of Romans 13 in our July 2nd sermon, but what we need to understand is that it is not unlawful to stand in defense of your life and liberties against unjust aggression. And that's where the American colonists were at. They were in a defensive war in protection of life and liberty to the extent that they would separate because fleeing is your first option. And if you cannot flee, of which the colonists couldn't go any further, (laughs) you must defend. You must defend. And it is permissible. Finally, the psalmist moving in, I guess, well, actually in verse 9, 
Um, he speaks about how quickly God uh, could act before your pots can fill the burning thorns, the idea of thorns that would catch quick fire and immediately emit heat in, in cooking. Um, he assures that God will act. He shall take them away as with a whirlwind, as in his living and burning wrath. When God does judge, it is rapidly and it is sure. It is so fast that it is like a pot that is on over dry thorns that would immediately ignite, but he acts so quickly that that doesn't even get warm. So when it is time for God's cup of wrath to be spilled out, his actions will be swift. In verses 10 and 11, David continues on about the response of the righteous to what has happened here, resting in God's sovereignty and judgment. He says, the righteous shall rejoice when he sees vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked so that men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely he is God who judges in the earth. It is not wrong to rejoice when the wicked and thus wickedness is defeated. Okay. Now there's a difference with being happy about a certain thing and rejoicing because what you're rejoicing in is in the triumph of righteousness and the glorification of God, which his promise is that all wickedness will be dealt with. And when wickedness in time and space in a certain area in our land is taken care of, that is God's promise. And we rejoice in God's promises. And yeah, we rejoice even if it results in the loss of the life of the wicked individual. The prosecutor, the persecutor of righteous, he's received his just reward in time here on earth by the act of God carrying out his vengeance. And that should be a marvelous and joyous thing in our eyes. Now, it's not something to gloat in, for you had nothing to do with it. <laughs> and that's the thing. We can fall into, you know, our own sinful nature and kind of puff up our own chest and pat ourselves on our back. But no, we're rejoicing in God, rejoicing in the glory that comes to God through the defeat of the wicked. The, greatness, the greatest joy that we have is that righteousness would reign and that God would be glorified. In the second half of verse 10, there's an expression there that's kind of gruesome. It says, he shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. This isn't, again, it's gloating to actually do stuff along the way and start washing your feet in the blood of the wicked. That's not the idea here. It's not the idea that you are uh, bathing in the blood of the wicked. It is simply a depiction of the fact that when the enemy's defeated and the victors 
go in to take possession, say, of the city or the land, they've got to walk through the bloody battlefield. Their feet will be splattered with the blood of the enemy as they walk through among the defeated enemy. And there will be a time when they have to wash that off, but it's the evidence of their victory. Okay? That's all that's being depicted here. And the psalmist then ends with what uh, should be our prayer at all times, that God's people would receive their just reward. Here he says that men are going to look and say, there is a reward for the righteous. And our prayer is that God's people would receive that just reward and that God would receive the glory to his name. Because he is God who judges in the earth. Our desire is that he would manifest himself in the judgment of the wicked. And we should desire that even here in the land of America, that God would manifest himself in judging the wickedness in the land and throughout the world. Our challenge is, can we pray such a prayer? (laughs) Appropriately pray such a prayer. There are many times, though, I would pray this kind of a prayer concerning the various Planned Parenthoods and abortion clinics. They had proven they would not change. They needed to be brought down. God, in his mercy, has allowed steps to be taken along those lines, and there's still more to be done. It may be these prayers need to be uttered over other rulers and situations in our land as well. Our challenge is to receive this as God's word and something that should be a part of our prayer life at appropriate times. Let's pray. Father God, we do again thank you for your word and its clarity and its instruction and its challenge to us. And Lord, help us to understand how this psalm applies to our lives and situations and Father, at times, and maybe even now, we face situations in which those who are in places of authority are purposely silent to righteousness, purposely not making just judgments, purposely acting out of their wickedness and causing havoc and wickedness to um, flow in this land. Father God, help us to not only stand for what is righteous, to speak for righteousness, to share the truth of your word, but Lord, help us to have the heart to pray for what you have promised, to judge the earth. And Father, there is a judgment that needs to be exercised upon individuals and powers in this earth, in our own country and throughout the world. And Lord, we pray for you to act in time, Lord, knowing that your will is perfect, that in your time, your cup will be filled and poured out. And Father, we look for the day in which wickedness would be destroyed, and even if necessary, the wicked themselves would fall. Father, we also pray that your word would be powerful in terms of grace, mercy, and truth, and changing of hearts, and those that are called by you would hear your voice and would come to you 
And should they be individuals in places of authority, they would come to a greater understanding of what it means to rule in righteousness and how sinful it was for them to be silent against the unrighteous and help them, Father, to judge justly. For in all these things, not only is righteousness proclaimed, but you are glorified, and that is our greatest desire, that glory would be given to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.